up 3-8 to 17. So you need both of those tonight. Yeah, so if you guys didn't hear that, 3-1 to 7, we're going to finish up. And then 3-8 to 17, we'll, uh, we'll be picking up and, Lord willing, moving a good distance through. All right, let's go ahead and get started uh, this evening. I get a little nervous whenever I preach on things like wives, be submissive to your own husbands, that people will come back. And so I'm grateful that we did. But I think if we understand what Peter's saying here, I think it's a, it's a good thing. And today we're going to be able also to get to some instructions to husbands. And, uh, and there's some really good instructions to husbands here. And... Uh, so I'm looking forward to jumping into that this evening with you. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, this is your church. These are your people. This is your word that I'm proclaiming. So I pray that you would use your spirit to convict your people's hearts about what it says so that we might grow in faith and holiness and more like your son live each day. We thank you that you've taught us by means of the Holy Spirit you've given in the new birth, you've granted to us to deny the fleshly lusts and to pursue honorable things in this life. So help us to know what is honorable and to seek after that for the sake of your glory, that we might bring light, we by the light of our actions might bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're dealing with the instructions to wives here in 3 chapter 1. Uh, chapter 3, I'm sorry, and verse 1, we read it last time. I'll, I'll just read it and we'll move quickly to where we left off. He says, Likewise, wives, be submissive or follow the lead of your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And then he notes, so, so the first command is this, follow the lead of your husbands. Because, and here's the grounding he gives for it, because let's imagine that your husband is an unbeliever. How then will you win your husband to Christ? I think the immediate thing we might say is, well, I'll tell him the gospel, and then he'll believe the gospel. And of course, that is the ultimate hope. Without the gospel, there is no salvation. But Peter suggests that these Ladies who have already shared the gospel with their husbands, the best thing they can do is actually not to continue to proclaim the gospel in such a way that it might badger and continue to uh, bother someone by continually just bringing up the same point, but instead showing the, the way, showing the fruit of a right relationship with Christ. And if we took time, I imagine that some of us would be able to say one of the things that led us to our transformation in Christ was the observation of the changed life of somebody else. To be able to see what God did in their life and to say, that's incredible. And that piques our interest to consider what happened in their life. And that's what Peter's suggesting here. So his second command is connected then to that first command. Because the first command, again, was follow the lead of your husbands. But then the second command, verse 3, do not let your adorning be external. And, and I think the emphasis here is don't put all of your stock and time and energy in the external fabrication of beauty. So that would be the uh, magnificent hairstyle that takes multiple, multiple, multiple hours. That would be the gold jewelry that costs excessive amounts of money or the very nice and fine clothing. And of course, I think we have to understand this contextually. This is a contextual book. And he mentions here braided hair. Is there anything particularly problematic about braided hair? As though braided hair is something that Christians should avoid. Because here Peter says, don't do the braided hair. Well, I think the answer is pretty clearly no. And, and why would I say that? Because actually literally read, the text says this. It says, don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. 
does Peter have a problem with, uh, you know, people putting on clothing? No, he certainly does not. So what he's suggesting is that this would be a type of clothing that draws attention to oneself. That is designed in such a way to do that. And he's saying that should not be the focus and the attention of a Christian person. We do not beautify the external. Now, again, please don't hear Peter wrong nor me wrong. I don't think he's saying so everyone should be as homely as we possibly can be. Now, I'm not suggesting looking homely is necessarily bad. But I don't think he's also saying that that is what we should do. There are sects of Christians, right? So, so groups of Christians who think that that's, that's what we should do, right? So you've historically had the Amish and the, um, the Mennonites, and they are very plain people. And that's how they would describe themselves. And they think that that's a, a noble thing. I don't necessarily think it is. But it depends on your culture. There are various ways within a particular culture to express honorable clothing choices, honorable conduct, that sort of thing. And all Peter's saying is, when it comes to your attention, your focus, here's where it should be rather than here. Because some people, and I think we all know this, and this isn't just women, by the way. There are some men who are this way too, focus so much on the external because it's the thing that immediately is obvious and aware and it draws people. But Peter's point is sometimes that can be taken over and we don't focus on the internal, the transformation of ourselves. So that's, that's where he turns next. Now, I've given you, uh, uh, let me see. So, so he makes a comparison here. He then says in verse 4, but let your adorning be. So don't let your adorning be these things, the external things, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. So what does he mean by hidden person of the heart? I don't think he's saying that what you should work on is that which is literally hidden from all, but I think he's, this is what he's saying, that it's initially hidden. Because the braided hair is the first thing somebody's going to notice about you. But the character that you have worked on and dedicated to be godly and Christ-like is not always the first thing someone notices about you. Because the only way you can know that about somebody is what? You get to know them. You build a relationship. Over time, you say, there's something deeply beautiful about this person. They are different. And they love people, and they care, and they have clearly worked on their character. That's what Peter's saying here. That's what he means by the hidden person of the heart. Not necessarily that it's always hidden, but that it's not evident immediately on the surface. So then he adds what it is that we ought to work on. Uh, he says, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. So, he says, this is what you should adorn yourself with. This is what you should dress yourself with. Not necessarily these external things, but the internal things. And here's what it is, the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Well, it's interesting, he speaks of incorruptible. This is actually the third time we've seen this word incorruptible used in, in the, the letter. The first time he referred to the fact that our inheritance, he said, you will one day receive an inheritance that is incorruptible. It'll never tarnish. It'll never fade. It endures forever. The second time he spoke of the imperishable sacrifice of Christ, that is, there are sacrifices that are given in the Old Testament time period, but they were only good for a short period of time. Until you sinned again, and then you needed another sin. But there's a sacrifice of Christ, which is incorruptible. It will never fade. It will never change. It is permanently good. And then third, it referred to the imperishable seed of God, the Word of God. The Word of God is imperishable. And his point there is that this seed that gives you new life 
is an imperishable seed, and if the seed is imperishable, then the life itself is, is imperishable. The life that's produced by that seed is imperishable. So we've been given imperishable life. So this then is the fourth time he's used this word imperishable. And what he's getting at is this distinction between the temporal and the eternal. And we as believers have to continue throughout our lives to focus on the eternal rather than the temporal. Because where do our minds just naturally as people in this world go to? It's always the, the thing that's coming next. And we lose our long-term focus about what really matters. Now, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but that is true of me. I so often lose the sight of the most important for the immediately important. And Peter's point here is we need to focus on those things that last, that last for eternity, because here's the thing, you're going to last for eternity. So here's the question that, that he's, he's putting forth before these, these women in the, within this congregation. You have an option to spend your energy and focus on external beautification that is temporary. The braiding of hair, I mean, ladies who, who've gone to like the, you know, the, I don't know, proms or whatever. You spend all this time on the hair and then you went to bed <laughs> and then you woke up and it was all ruined, right? So two hours or whatever. It doesn't last, right? It's temporary. Uh, you bought that really nice dress and man, it was glorious. And then you got ketchup on it. Or maybe I should say, uh, um, you know, steak sauce. Okay, that's probably ketchup, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully you went somewhere better than with ketchup, all right? Um, you know, to, with this really nice dress. You know, all these things, these are the things that fade. So are you going to focus on the things that are temporary, that are going to fail, that are not eternal? Or are you going to focus on the thing that, that lasts, that's, in, that's incorruptible, that'll never change? And he says, so focus on the incorruptible. And then he defines it further, incorruptible beauty. So he's saying that this quality is beauty. And, and I think, you know, this is absolutely true, that there is a type of beauty that has nothing to do with the way someone looks. That's the immediate thing that we see about somebody. Uh, but there is a deep set beauty that it doesn't matter what person someone looks like. Uh, that's something about their character. And, and we get that. And that's what he's saying. The incorruptible beauty. And then of what? Of a gentle, he says, and quiet spirit. Well, what do these words mean? Well, let's, let's deal with them in, in their order. Neither of these qualities is distinctively feminine. I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind. Neither of these is distinctively fe feminine. First of all, Je Jesus him calls himself gentle. Do you remember in uh, Matthew 5, 5? Uh, actually, it's not Matthew 5, 5. I'm trying to think of where it is. Yeah, that may be it. Where, where he talks, well, I think I flipped him. 1129, maybe? But in any case, he calls himself gentle and lowly, right? This is what he refers to himself as. He's gentle. He's kind. Uh, this is a character quality that is not distinctively feminine. Uh, yeah, good. Yes, and that, that is in terms of all believers, but not in terms of Jesus defining himself. Because I note there Jesus called himself gentle, but that's actually the passage in which he calls believers to be gentle. So I think I flipped those. Because I think 11.29 is where Jesus says that I am gentle. And then 5.5 5 is where he calls all believers, uh, blessed are the gentle, right? Uh, for they shall inherit the earth, he tells us. Further, the New Testament calls all believers to a quiet lifestyle, 1 Timothy 2, 2. So again, this isn't women in particular have to have these two character qualities, but Peter's saying these are character qualities that uh, perhaps in reference to these wives may lead to the transformation of their husbands. 
So what exactly do these mean? Gentleness refers to a realistic assessment of oneself leading to humility and action towards others. The opposite is pride and demanding one's own way. And I think in terms of Jesus, this is in reference to the fact that he submitted to the will of the Father. Despite his incredibly glorious position, he determined that he would follow the lead of the Father. And I think in the same way. Despite the fact that, ladies, you might have better mental hardware than your husband's, better abilities in some ways, uh, God has nevertheless called the wife to follow the lead of the husband. And there takes a bit of humility sometimes in that. Uh, what does the quiet spirit mean? This may refer to being silent so as to learn. In 1 Timothy 2, it is referred to that way. But more likely, I think, in this context, it refers to living in such a way that one avoids conflict and disturbing activity. Such people are elsewhere called peacemakers, and they seek to avoid being the cause of conflict. I think the NET translation, the NET translation, translates this quite well as tranquil. Tranquil. They're peaceable people. I think that's, that's the sense here. Peaceable. Indeed, this is the way the word is used in both Isaiah um, 66.2 and then 1 Timothy 2.2, that that God calls his people to tranquility. They're peacemakers. They seek peace within a relationship. And again, I think both of these are character qualities of one who is seeking to follow the lead of another. And uh, so... Peter emphasizes these as being those qualities that show forth uh, an internal beauty in reference to uh, these wives. And then he defines that, that internal beauty as something that is costly or precious. The word there, teme, is the Greek word. Um, I believe that's the word that's used there. It can, it can refer to costly or precious things. So, it's costly in the sense that it costs you something, right? And and that may be what Peter's getting at. But it also could be precious. And I think that this gets better at it because it is precious in the sight of God. God values this when he looks at wives. This is something valuable in the sight of God. And, of course, throughout this letter, Peter contrasts man's vision with God's. Um, For example, Jesus was chosen by God but rejected by men. Believers are chosen by God, yet outsiders in relation to the world. Here he notes that women have the opportunity to live either for the one who chose them or for the external uh, view of man. Actually, I think I skipped a page, did I not? No? Okay. Okay. All right, which is in the sight of God, costly and precious. Okay, I I skipped point B. (laughs) Some have suggested Peter was echoing 1 Samuel 16, 7, because it says, which is in the sight of God, God looks on a woman, and he says, that woman is beautiful. But when he says that, is he referring to physical features? No. No. God doesn't care about our physical features. That is an important part of who we are. He cares about the character of us. And this is why some suggest 1 Samuel 16, 7b is important because it says the Lord does not look at on the things people look on. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And you, if you remember, this is when uh, they're looking at David, right? So David's got a bunch of older brothers. And Samuel's like, well, it must be one of these because look at how tall and and foreboding these people are. They're tall, dark, and handsome or whatever. And and God says, actually, or Samuel says, actually, God doesn't look on the outward appearance but on the heart. And uh, this is true. And as he looks towards wives, he says, here's what is beautiful. Here's what's beautiful before God. And, and, And then I was mentioning that man's view tends to be the external vantage point. God's view is the internal. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, 9-10 says something very similar. He says, Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, 
with modesty, self-control, not with braided hair, gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. In other words, Paul is saying there's two options. You can load yourself with all the external beautification or load yourself with good works. And, uh, you know, this is, again, true of both men and women. Uh, he's giving the advice here to the women of the congregation. But I don't think we as men can close our ears to such things because it's also true of us. All right. <clears throat> and then he gives an example of holy women in verses 5 to 6. He says, for in this way, the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. For in this same way, the saints of old. Now, you have to ask the question, all right, who are these holy women of old? Uh, probably, he's referring to Sarah, Leah, Rachel, Rebecca, the, uh, the women of the, uh, the time period of the Old Testament. Uh, that they were holy aligns them with Christ, the Christian readers. They, they were made holy too. They were sanctified by God's Holy Spirit. And they hoped in God. That is, they were very much like Peter's readers. They hoped in, in, in the God who would save. And in the same way, Peter's readers do the same. So how did they adorn themselves? What did they dress themselves with to beautify themselves? Peter goes on to say, here's how they did it, by following the lead of their own husbands, by submitting to their own husbands. Again, Peter includes their own here, indicating that it's not just the following the lead of whatever man that's out there, but rather in a particular relationship, they followed the lead of their husbands. Then she gives a very specific illustration. As Sarah obeyed Abraham while calling him Lord. As Sarah obeyed Abraham while calling him Lord. Now, what's really odd about this statement is that we're not exactly sure what passage from the Old Testament Peter's referring to. Because there's only one time in the entire Old Testament where Sarah actually uses the word Lord in reference to Abraham. And that's in Genesis 18.12, but it would be a really odd choice because it's in this context, um, Sarah lied to Abraham. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Peter's probably not drawing attention to that particular <laughs> event, because uh, this is when uh, Sarah laughs, having heard that she's going to have a baby, and she's like, uh-huh. And then Abraham comes, because the, the angel says Sarah's laughing about this, Abraham comes and says, you know, are you laughing? And she says, no, I didn't laugh. All right, so this doesn't, or oh, no, Lord, I didn't laugh, or something like that, but this is the context in which she, she says that in the Septuagint. Um, I think it's probably more likely that, uh, that Peter is referring back to the, uh, the plethora of intertestamental literature that referred to the relationship between Sarah and Abraham. And in that, in that literature, uh, that, that language is frequent. So, I, I don't, or we can just simply say, generally, uh, Peter's talking about the, the way in which Sarah would respond to her husband. But in any case, he doesn't give uh, enough information for us to really pinpoint a particular text. And then he says, whose children you are. Uh, which is interesting because we sing a song, don't we? Father Abraham. All right, you guys remember this one? The, the <clears throat> song in which you have the right to punch your neighbor, right? Um, and, uh, <clears throat> but anyway, so, so the Father Abraham song talks about the fact that we as children of God are children of Abraham. And sometimes dispensationalists don't like singing that song because we're not. But, I, you know, according to Scripture, we are the children of Abraham, children by faith. But here it's actually indicating <clears throat> that the ladies who are holy in faith are daughters of Sarah. So not just Father Abraham, but Mother Sarah, right? And that's, that's the language he's saying. Whose daughters you are, if indeed, <clears throat> he goes on to say, you are doing good. <clears throat> so what does doing good here mean? It could be means. Uh, so 
by doing good. So you are her daughters by doing good. Well, of course, that makes it sound like uh, you become saved by doing good. And I don't think that's what Peter's saying. It could be if you do good, and I think that's probably the best way of taking it. So it's the condition. If you do good, then you are Sarah's children. Now that also sounds to our ears sometimes like what I'm saying is, uh, if you do this, then you become the children of God. But I think that actually gets it backwards. Because the cart goes before the horse here, and this is, or the horse before the cart, and we sometimes get the cart before the horse. So why is it that the righteous person lives righteously? Are they righteous? Do they do righteous deeds and then become saved? Or did they come to know the Lord and were transformed by the Spirit and therefore have righteous deeds? So then couldn't we say, if you do good, then you are children, Sarah's children. And the point there is not do good and then you can become, but rather, if you're doing it, then you show yourself to be. And I think that's what Peter's saying here. He's essentially saying, <clears throat> here's how Sarah reflected the right relationship between husband and wife in relation to her husband. And you are daughters of her. You are followers of her. When you do the right thing yourself, when you show yourself to be uh, acting righteously, you are showing yourself to be in the right relationship of faith to God. <clears throat> and then he says, and if you are not fearing anything frightening. And this is the final line he says in relationship to the husband or to, to the wives, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Well, what does that mean? I think this goes back to the, the whole admonition that he's been giving. Remember, he's talking to ladies, uh, some of whom are in unequal social positions. Of course, all of them are in the sense that, that they're called to follow their husbands. But some of them are in potentially problematic situations because they are married to unbelievers. And again, in the Greek, Greco-Roman world, the husband had 100% unilateral authority. Nobody questioned what the husband did. You know, today, if a lady comes with a black eye, people start asking some questions, and rightfully so. Back then, a lady came out with a black eye. Nobody asked a question. Wasn't gonna, nobody was going to get affair, involved in somebody else's affairs, right? That's just the type of world that, that the Greco-Roman world was in. The husband had no accountability to anybody. Uh, nobody cared about that sort of thing. And I, I think we've improved in, in many ways that way, that, that people do care about that sort of thing. But here then, when he says you don't fear anything that is frightening, I think he's referring back to that relationship. And he's saying, I recognize that some of you are in these relationships where your husband doesn't know the Lord, is an unrighteous person, and that can lead to great fear and anxiety within your heart. Yet, you trust the Lord who's sovereign even over that. And so, in the same way that I think he's just developed in 2.18, he's talked about um, servants be subject even if your master is unjust. Uh, he's talking about people in very bad social situations that they can't get themselves out of. And he calls on, on them to trust in the Lord who will make all things right and reward anyone who suffers injustice. That's what he says in 2.18. And I think that's what he's getting at in 3.7. He's saying, there are some of you who are frightened by the relationship you are in. Um, and he says uh, that you, you should not necessarily fear anything that is frightening. In other words, uh, there's a sovereign trust in the Lord, even in the midst of difficult circumstances like that. Now, of course, that brings up a lot of questions we'd like answered, of course. And we live in a different cultural context, a different cultural moment than they did at that time. Uh, please don't hear me in any way saying that a woman today who's in an uh, abusive situation or that sort of a thing, 
should put up with that abusive situation. We could talk through that if, if we need to, but I, I don't think that's what the scripture is calling all women to at all times. But we're dealing with a time period in which there was no recourse. Uh, in the Greco-Roman world, I don't even believe a woman could even initiate a divorce. And it was a very difficult, challenging situation. And, and I think Peter's calling on, on people to throw themselves to the, the one who judges justly, even as Jesus himself did that in reference to his own life. We read that twice within the text. All right, so here is uh, Peter's admonition to wives. And then in verse 7, he gives admonition to husbands. Now, of course, in one sense, we look at that and we say, well, six verses to the wives and one verse to the husband? And, and that is true. Uh, I, would, I would say, though, in terms of the overall argument that Peter presents, he gives the same number of commands to the husbands that he did, does to the wives. He just doesn't develop them to the degree that he does with the wives. And, and I think that the commands here are quite appropriate to the social situation that they're involved with. So let's take a look at it, verse 7. And by the way, verse 7 is, is one of the longest verses. It may be the longest verse in all of First uh, Peter. So likewise, husbands, he says, live with your wives in an understanding way. I'll read the whole thing and then we'll come back to deal with it line by line. Showing honor to the woman as to the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers be not hindered. So he now addresses husbands. Likewise, husbands, and I think the idea likewise there is there's a social relationship that a slave has to a master. There's a social relationship that a wife has to a husband. There's a social relationship that a husband has to a wife. So likewise, husbands, here's your responsibility to your wife. What is it? Well, he first says, um, live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, the structure of this verse is, is quite actually difficult to, uh, to translate. English versions differ, and I've given you a couple of different English versions here. Notice what the ESV does. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they're heirs with you in the grace of life. The NIV, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives, and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you in the grace of life. And I would argue that it seems better grammatically to see both participles bearing imperatival weight. If you want to look into that, the essence of it is this, that I think that, that the NASB and the CSB probably get this better. Notice the CSB translation down there under B. Husbands, in the same way, Live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner. We'll talk about what weaker partner means in just a second. Showing them honor as co-heirs with you in the grace of life. All right, so let's deal with this passage in relation to the two, two commands that he gives to the husbands here. First, live with your wives in an understanding way. Uh, this verb here, live with your wives, is used throughout the Old Testament, refer to the duty of husbands to their wives. The command, uh, the command is to live in an understanding way, but yet the object is understand, uh, the object, so live in an understanding way in relation to what? Some believe it's concerning the knowledge and will of God. Live in an understanding way, that is, live understanding what God would have you to do. That's possible. Or, and I think more likely, it's the content of the next clause. Live with your wives in an understanding way, knowing that they are a weaker partner. Now let's jump into what exactly we mean by weaker partner. Uh, Peter notes that the way the husband is to live with an understanding of the partner is to recognize that she is, quote, weaker. What exactly does he mean by weaker? Well, there's all kinds of ways we could take this. Physically, um, I was just uh, wrestling with my daughter 
my youngest one, for some reason, likes to, to wrestle more than the other ones. And so, uh, so she was grabbing my, my fingers and pulling them, and then I was supposed to grab her fingers. So, so it was like this. I grabbed two of her fingers, and she, she grabbed two of my fingers. And then we were supposed to see whoever pulled, out, pulled their fingers out first. And so I just went like this. And she's like, Dad, you can't do that. You're stronger than me. Well, how am I supposed to play the game? And I don't even understand what I'm supposed to do here. But, but she was recognizing, <laughs> but she was recognizing that I am physically stronger than her. And of course, that's a father to a daughter. But I imagine that when she's my age, I will still be stronger than her. If, if we were matched age to age, I'd probably be stronger than her. I'm stronger than my wife. I'm not stronger than my sister-in-law, but she, she, uh, she, what, what's that, what's that group who, who works out all the time, um, with Jim Rat, but they, uh, CrossFit, she does that CrossFit stuff, and, uh, so, uh, she's a wonderful, godly lady, but she probably is stronger than me, but on the whole, men are stronger than women, and I don't think that's a debatable thing, right, well, in our culture, I suppose it is, but it shouldn't be a debatable thing, right? God has made us different, and physically, uh, just strength, God has made men f physically stronger than women because of some of the nature of, of you know, the physical work that uh, I believe God originally created men to do. So he created our bodies differently. Uh, spiritually, now, do not hear me saying that I think all of these are what Peter means by weaker. I'm saying these are the things Peter could mean by weaker, or at least some have suggested in the past, spiritually weaker. But I'll note that I don't think that's the case. Mentally weaker, I'm convinced the scripture doesn't teach that. And by the way, I'm a teacher, and I used to be at the university. And let me tell you, I don't think that's true. <laughs> My best students were always always the, the ladies, all right? So... Um, Mentally, emotionally, socially. So clearly, Peter did not think of women as weaker spiritually. Uh, he just commended the holy women of the past, and we'll later speak of the spiritual equality of men and women. There's nothing, I mean, all of us are made in the image of God. There's inequality there, and there's, there's nothing spiritually different. Uh, in fact, Paul says in Galatians that there is in Christ no male or female because we're all equal. Second, that women are weaker mentally is unjustified both biblically and experientially. There's nothing in Scripture, I think, that suggests that. And there certainly isn't anything in my experience that suggests that. That women are weaker emotionally and physically was certainly assumed in the ancient world. Though, and I put this in parentheses because I, I really believe it's true, strength emotionally can be alternatively understood. Um, <laughs> So uh, I think that I can, you know, I'll just speak about my marriage. I think I can handle bad news in a much better way than my wife can because I'm cold and callous, I suppose. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> whereas on the other hand, when it comes to needing to be emotionally present, uh, you know, when my girls hurt themselves, guess who they go to? They don't come running to daddy. Because <laughs> the first question I ask is, is it bleeding? <laughs> All right, and, and, and maybe others are that way. You know, I mean, you know, they're just not going to get that side. So is that strength or weak? Well, it depends on the context, right? You know, so, so I think, I, I don't think he means here emotionally. This leaves the one that I think is what he's saying, and that is socially. I think that's what Peter's talking about here. They are socially, they're the weaker partner socially. Because notice what Peter's been doing so far. He's been talking about people who are in disadvantaged social positions. Now he comes and he says, hey, listen, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, recognizing the social position of your wife. I think that's what he's referring to. In essence, Peter's saying, husbands, live with your wives recognizing their weaker, that is, their subordinate position. And of course, to obey this, the husband would have to look at life from the perspective of the wife, who in the first century, especially in the first century, was entirely powerless. Those, 
Though society has, I think, shifted substantially in regard to this since Greek times, I don't think that absolves husbands of this same duty and responsibility. I have been given the task by God to lead my family. And that puts my wife in a position where she's asked to follow me. And if I am a righteous husband, then I am always aware of that fact. I'm always thinking of how will this decision that I'm making influence and affect the, wife, the life of my wife? Right? So, so here, here I come along and, uh, you know, I get a phone call and it says, hey, listen, we just started a uh, seminary in Hawaii. Would you like to come? And it's April 15th and it's snowing outside. <laughs> and so I answer that, oh yeah, yeah, here, we're coming. All right, goodbye. Hey, babe, you know all the relationships you built at work, you know all the, the kids in the school, and you know how if we pack up and move, you do all the packing. Uh, we're doing that. We're just heading to Hawaii. Uh, let, let's do that. Would, would that be living with my wife in an understanding way? Absolutely not, right? Because I'm, I'm not looking at life from her perspective, and I think that's what Peter's calling the husband to. And I tell you again, you know, the, when the social relationships work the way that God designed them to work, we don't bristle against the social relationships. The wife who has a husband who loves her as himself, right? In Ephesians, uh, husbands love your wives as your own body. The husband who loves his wife in that way, who thinks about everything from her perspective, makes it incredibly easy for the wife to follow his lead, <laughs> right? And the wife who uh, develops the characteristics that Peter has argued is beautiful in God's sight makes it easy for the husband who's tasked with leading the family to lead the family. And so when we operate the way that God designed husbands and wives to operate. Things move like a nicely oiled machine. But here's the problem. Sin is sand. <laughs> what happens if you get sand in a machine? I don't think too many patents have sand in the machines. Because <laughs> that's just going to mess everything up, right? And sin is that sand that messes everything up in our relationships. So what does it mean that the wife, the wife is a weaker vessel? I think it's referring to this social position. All right, and then he says second command. The first command is live with your wives in an understanding way, recognizing them as the weaker. Uh, but then in, in that weaker uh, vessel position, then the second thing he says is show honor to your wives. And I think this reflects back to 2.12. If you remember, he says don't. Go the way of the flesh, but instead live honorably. And here he says, show honor to your wives. Uh, this, by the way, would just be crazy to think of in the ancient world. That somebody would honor their wife. No, no, no. She has to show honor towards you. In an honor-shame culture, the command to honor the wife is, I think, quite significant. And it refers to giving to her what is due to her position. What is that position? Well, he goes on to say, as co-heirs with you in the grace of life. So why should the husband honor his wife? One reason, though not the only reason, but one reason is because despite the fact that God has asked in this social situation for her to follow your lead, you are ontologically, that means at essence, you are equal. There's nothing better about you other than the position that God has given you in this social relationship. And even that, that's not, that doesn't make you better, but it does give you some opportunity uh, uh, to, to lead and to serve. Though God established the husband as the head in the marriage, such a relationship does not the, negate the equality that exists spiritually. 
and I mentioned the relationship of the father and the son that I think shows some analogy to the, the, the husband and the wife. And then he adds this last line, and I think this is really significant. He says, so that your prayers be not hindered. What do you think the connection is there? I don't ask too many questions around here, but I'll ask that one this time. Okay, so you're sinning if you're not obeying. And one of the things we're going to read in, in just a couple of verses from now is that God's ear is open to the prayer of the righteous. But when someone acts unrighteously, his ear is not open to them. Okay? What else do you think is significant about this then? Especially in the first century world. Is there a checks and balances on the husband in the first century world? No. But Peter says there is one, right? Husbands, the society, the culture at large may not hold you accountable to love and to honor your wife. It may not. But God does. And if you don't treat your wife right, don't expect God to listen to you. He won't hear your prayers. So your relationship to your wife determines your relationship to me or to, to, to the Heavenly Father. And man, that, that I mean, that's, that's important stuff. <laughs> uh, so that, and, and I think this, this has tendrils of application far beyond even just the husband-wife relationship, but our relationship to God depends on our relationship to other people. If we don't treat other people right, then our relationship to God is not right. And Peter reminds husbands that this is primarily the case in terms of their marriage. So in a world in which the husband can trample the wife and do whatever he wants and nobody ever cares in the broader Greek culture, uh, Peter says, no, no, there, there is one who cares. And he sees. And you will not be heard with your prayers if you uh, treat your wife in, in inappropriate ways. All right, any comments, questions in relation to 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7? Yeah. You know, in 1 John, it says if you ask anything according to his will, hmm. well, if you are being disrespectful like that to your wife, well, that's not according to the will of God. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, and, and like I said in just a little bit here, uh, notice <clears throat> verse 12. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. And the implication here is that if you're not righteous, his ear is not open to your prayer. He won't listen to you. And, uh, and here is, uh, is essentially a way of seeing whether a man is righteous. How does he treat his wife? Right? If he's righteous, then he treats her well and God hears his prayer. But if he's unrighteous, then he doesn't treat his wife well. And God doesn't listen to his prayers. All right, so then well, let's take a look at uh, 1 Peter 3, 8. He then turns to some final admonitions. Because what he's done up to this point, he's been dealing with social relations within the church and outside the church. Slaves, uh, then he deals with husbands and wives. And uh, in, in, in fact, first of all, he dealt with uh, what do we do in terms of our relationship to Caesar, right, government? Then he dealt with slaves in relation to their masters, and then he dealt with husbands and wives. Now he's going to turn to the entirety of the congregation and give them some, uh, some principles to live by. So he says, finally, all of you. And remember, uh, you know, Peter's a good Baptist preacher. So he says, finally, which means there's only a couple of chapters left. All right. <laughs> So finally, all of you have unity of mind, <clears throat> sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So what does he mean by these uh, character qualities he calls all these believers to? Well, he first says, have unity of mind. There are five adjectives he expresses throughout this section. Each one implies an imperative that has to be followed. Different translations take this unity of mind in different ways. So the NIV takes it as be like-minded. NASB has be harmonious. The ESV has unity of mind or spirit. Uh, unfortunately, this word occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. The, the, 
The idea it portrays is quite common, though. And it suggests that the church at large needs to have unity. We need to be in harmony with one another. And, of course, harmony means humility. Because uh, the easiest way of knowing whether you are humble or not is to see whether you get along with people. If you don't, I promise you there's, there's a pride issue somewhere along the way. If you just say, well, you know, nobody, nobody seems to get along with me there may be something there <laughs> to look into, okay? Um, because those who are humble naturally have unity of mind. He then says the second thing, have sympathy. What does he mean by sympathy? Well, it's only used here in the New Testament, this Greek word. But the, but the verbal form of it is used a couple of times in the New Testament, both in reference to God's people first. It's used of Jesus. Jesus, when he sympathized with our weaknesses, Hebrews 4, 5. Jesus sympathized with our weaknesses. He understood us. And how did he understand us? He, he took on flesh to understand us. He entered into our situation so that he might understand our situation. Second, believers sympathized with each other by meeting the needs of those in prison. And that's in Hebrews 10, 4. And so, in other words, there were believers in prison, and some people took them food and perhaps clothing. Why might you not want to do that? Yeah, because, because the reason they're in there is because of their proclamation of Christ, because of their embrace of Christ. And you coming to encourage them and to give them food, guess what everybody says? Ah, you too, right? So it opens you up to accusation and perhaps uh, that you might likewise. But, Peter, but uh, Hebrews says that, the, that the, Hebrew, the believers there were willing even to have their lands seized. I mean, we understand this. I mean, you know, if, if your house was seized, that would be a rather significant thing, I would imagine. In the ancient world, your life depended on your land, right? And here these people's lands were being seized for their mention of Christ, but they overlooked that because they sympathized with those who were in prison. They, they saw their need. They entered into that. And in the same way, Peter is calling for believers to have sympathy with one another, to enter into each other's lives, to try and see things from another believer's perspective. It's not easy. And sometimes uh, I can't see something from somebody else's perspective. I, you know, if, if um, we've got young families who have tragically lost young ones during pregnancy, and uh, we, we never experience that. And so it, there's a sense in which we can't understand that. But there's another sense in which despite the fact that I can't fully understand that. I can sympathize with that. I, I can come alongside and think about what would it have been like for one of my daughters to have been lost during, child, or during childbirth or at some period prior to that. And you say, well, I don't want to think about that. You should think about that. Because then you can at least an approximation, come to understand what somebody else is going through who's in your congregation. Try and understand what somebody, I mean, so somebody's child abandons the faith or something like that. Then stop and consider what that would be like and enter into that so that you feel for them. You literally feel for them. And, and I, think, I think that's what Peter's calling us to because to the degree that we do that is the degree to which we feel compelled to reach out. And to the degree that we say, you know, I, I've never been there. I don't know what to say. I've never been engaged in that situation. And, you know, somebody else is going to step in. Oh, boy. How many people, have, how, how many saints have felt abandoned by the flock because everybody else thought everybody else was going to step in? I mean, it can be a problem sometimes when, you know, when you're grieving and 
and a lot of people reach out and, and it, it can become overburdensome, but I dare say that's the rare situation <laughs> in life. Uh, I just remember about a, it, it was a year ago, two weeks in a year ago, I don't know, something like that. My wife had a blood clot in her leg. Actually, it went from her ankle <clears throat> all the way up to her stomach. I had COVID at the time. <laughs> so I was staying in our bedroom. She was staying in the <clears throat> guest room uh, so that we could be separated. And it was up the stairs. <clears throat> and I was on day seven or something like that. And <clears throat> so she comes down uh, from up there and she says, there's something, there's something wrong. I can't bend my leg and it's... It's, I mean, just swollen, and it's completely red and getting blue. And, uh, and I said, we we got to get somebody to take you to the emergency room. And so they take her to the emergency room, and <clears throat> she's got a, a blood clot that's just preventing any blood from going to her leg. <clears throat> and I remember, you know, so they're rushing her into surgery. I'm not hearing anything for like six hours, you know, and I'm just waiting on a phone call. And, you know, now at this point, somebody else has picked up our kids. So I'm just at, by myself in the house. And I just remember one of the ladies in the church, she's in my ABF, just, sorry. But she just texted and said, hey, what can I get you for dinner? And I didn't need dinner. Because I was going to make my own, you know, I had stuff in the fridge. I was just going to make dinner. And I said, oh, nothing. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just make something. And she said, well, <clears throat> Ed's on his way, and he's just going to pick something up if you don't tell me what, what, what you want. And I just broke down. Because, you know, as meaningless as that might have been, and how, you know, $10 for a meal, it just was something I needed at that time. And man, I tell you, I mean, how, how small that was, and she probably has no clue how significant that was to me at that moment. But somebody cared about my situation and uh, loved me enough to reach out. And you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not here complaining, but uh, <clears throat> you know, not a lot of people reached out. And I'm, again, I don't sit here and think about, oh, that person didn't reach out to me. <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever thought that about anybody, okay? So please don't read, read it that way. But man, what a, what a blessing it would have been if I would have just gotten inundated with just love from my church family. And so I'm just saying, you know, Paul or Peter here is saying, have unity of mind and have sympathy for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Think about their situations and reach into their situations. Uh, then his third thing here is have familial love. Now, that's my own word. I think I made that up. But um, modern versions simply often say something like love one another. But I think that, that actually misses something in the text. Because it, older versions say something like have brotherly love. Have brotherly love. But, of course, then what about the sisters? So I say have familial love. And I think Peter intentionally is getting at familial love because he does consider us brothers and sisters in Christ. You are my brothers and sisters. We are a family. And so I ought to have a family-type love for you and you for me. Now, of course, that is slightly complicated by the fact that we are not in the same assembly. Uh, but for those in your assembly, they really ought to be your brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, as Paul talks about it in the, in, uh, in the pastoral epistles. I've given you a, a really long account here that you can read on your own if you would like, the account of Peregrine, and it notes how ancient Christians loved one another. And so read that uh, sometime tonight if you have time, but it just shows how the uh, love for believers was something that was evident even to unbelievers in the early church. So love one another, all right, as family. We'll talk about that again at some point later in the text because he calls us to the same thing. And then a, a, a third thing or fourth thing, I forget what number I'm on here, have tender hearts. The word literally speaks about the inward portion of a person 
Uh, so uh, if you've got some of the older translations like the King James, it's, it's uh, have tender bowels, the bowels of mercy. <laughs> we understand why we don't use that language anymore. It doesn't quite communicate <laughs> nearly what it did at one time. Uh, so tender hearts is, you know, because the, the word refers to the inner uh, section of a person. I think it's, it's probably uh, the, the reason that that is that way. It's because you know that feeling that you can get when you feel excessively sad or, or you feel for somebody, right? There's, there's a feeling in the gut. And I think that's what it's getting after. Have tender hearts. Have a feeling for one another. And this goes beyond uh, just a love, but it's connected to love and uh, the, the compassion, that, uh, the sympathy that is asked about. So the, the point here is, that we ought to have a relationship with one another that goes beyond, hey, Fred, hey, Phil, see you next week. And that's the extent to which we know one another. If, if that's all you've got, then you can't obey these commands. You just can't do it. We've got to have something deeper than that. Let me read this final one, the fifth one, have humble hearts. Interestingly, in the ancient world, Humility was not something that was highly valued. Uh, before Christ, nobody ever talked about humility as a virtue. Alexander the Great was the, was the one. And what did he do? Did he, was he humble? Absolutely not. He was prideful. And that's how you conquer the world, right? But Jesus came and he conquered the world by being humble. In fact, he calls himself gentle humble. He commanded his disciples to be humble. And the New Testament communities were frequently commanded to hone the quality of humility. And this all goes together then. Because how are we going to be united? It's much easier to be united if all of us are humble. It's much easier to be united when we know that every one of us cares for the needs of the other people that we actually have sympathy for one another, that we have tender hearts. And I tell you, if, if you want to destroy a marriage, the quickest way to destroy a marriage is to get pride in there and for people not to care what the other person thinks anymore. No more tender heart concerning, no more sympathy about their situation. I care about myself. He cares about himself. She cares about herself. That's not going to work out well. Same thing happens in churches. If we lose the sympathy we have for one another, our tender hearts, our love for one another, there cannot be unity. And all of this comes down to the fact that we are not humble. And so, just draw one more attention. Notice uh, number seven there. These five qualities, I think, were given in a creative form. Uh, it's called a chiasm. This is what you would do in the ancient world to highlight something. There were no highlighters. There was no underlining. There was no bolding or italics in, in manuscripts. So how do you highlight things? This was one of the ways. And that was to do a list of, fi of five things and to put the most important thing third. And I think that's exactly what he does here. Have unity of mind and have humility of mind are connected. Have sympathy and have tender heart are connected. And then the important central one that depends on unity of mind, humility of mind, sympathy, tender heart is this, love one another. And that was Jesus's central command to his disciples. All right, well, I've gone over a couple of minutes, and so I should let you go. Thanks.